You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Awesome. Well, turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 4. Um, we've turned another chapter. If you don't have a Bible, uh, or you don't have one with you, just slow up your hand, and one of our ushers will get you uh, a copy of God's Word. We want to have the Bible open our laps in front of us. Um, we want to come together to study God's Word, to see what God has said. Um, I, bring, uh, I bring pretty much nothing to the table. Um, my job and my goal is just to look at what God has said and try to unpack that for us as we come together um, to God's word as the authority. Um, Looking at Genesis 4, we see uh, a couple of brothers, and uh, I was reminded. uh, I grew up in uh, north of here, Bonneville, Cold Lake area. Um, My parents were believers, and I have a a brother who's uh, just a year and a half older than me, and then a, a sister who's a She's an accident. We love her, but, you know, remind her that every now and then. Um, By God's grace, I had a remarkably easy upbringing. Um, I was spared a lot of pain, a lot of hardship. Um, There were so many pitfalls, so many possible disasters and and hard roads that uh, I just avoided. I didn't, I didn't go down. And, uh, and I can honestly tell you, uh, it is not because I was some young man of great wisdom. Uh, it was not because I had some foresight, because um, I was pious and righteous at heart and always wanted to, to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That, that wasn't it. Um, I was neither of those things, not by any of the stretch of the imagination. Um, God's grace to me to keep me from a lot of sin and a lot of pain um, was an example for me, an older brother, an older brother who was an example, um, and sometimes we learn really well from bad examples. He, um, he was a, an active kid who wanted to push every boundary and break every rule and try every opportunity, and, uh, and, and that began very early from day one. Um, my mom had literally bruised ribs from this kid inside her who would constantly push against the, the boundaries of the womb, and that carried right on, as you can imagine, into his uh, teen years, and uh, he just continued to push every boundary, and uh, incredibly smart. Uh, and often was very successful in stretching and pushing those boundaries. Not, not always. Um, the, the beer brewing kit that he stole from the neighbors and tried to brew under his bed, that, that one didn't pan out very well. Um, but uh, often very adept. Um, pretty good at sneaking out at night. Pretty good at uh, um, keeping a, a careful list of his many and often overlapping secret girlfriends. Um, he pushed those boundaries constantly, and uh, that was a great benefit to me. As much as I, I idolized my big brother, and I wanted to, to do all the cool things that he did, and I wanted to be, to be like him, um, I got to sit back from about a year and a half behind and, and just see how often that ended badly, 
and, and how often he got hurt, how often he would, he would lose every privilege that my parents could find to take away. And so his, his constant rebellion left him in a state of constant discipline, and, and I got to watch. And so as I followed him down the road of life and he steered his car head on into every pothole and into every guardrail and down every detour, um, that was very helpful for me. Um, if he'd taken the straight and narrow way, I probably would have been much more tempted to try some of those detours myself. A, a bad example can be remarkably helpful. And uh, we see that not only in our families, in our lives, but we see it in Scripture. We see it in God's Word. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul gives this list of examples from the Old Testament. And they're not good. It's Israel following into idolatry, into immorality, into rebellion. And, and then verse 11, he says this, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. So they happen as an example, uh, and they're written down for us, that we would be instructed now, that we, we live later, we live into the, the end of the age, we look back and see this instruction for us. Their bad example becomes a, a warning for us. Cautionary tales, road signs along the way saying, dead end, bridge out, cliff ahead, right? And, and so this morning we come to the earliest and um, and, and an incredibly stark example, um, moving into Genesis chapter 4, um, we see our first and oldest brother, our big brother Cain, and we would do very well to pay attention. Look carefully and soberly at, at the life of Cain uh, and be warned. Be warned. Let's take a look at it together. Let me read for us. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 4 uh, and go all the way to verse uh, 16 this morning. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel uh, was a keeper of the sheep, Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground. And Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock of the, their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. 
Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away from the ground and away from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth written for us, preserved for us. We may come to it with confidence. Thank you that you speak through your word. Thank you that your word cuts to the heart. Lord, humble us this morning. We so often come to your word thinking that we are the hero of the story, that we know all the right answers, that it would affirm and encourage everything we think. And so often we need to be corrected. So often we need to be humbled. So often we need to see that we are the villain in the story. Lord, would you soften our hearts, open our ears, that your word may do its good work in our hearts. Lord, work your sanctification in us. Lord, if there are those who do not know you this morning, that you would open their eyes to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. God, if there's anything I have to say this morning that is not of you, that is not true and faithful to your word, may may those words just fall to the ground and be forgotten. Um, But God, may your word be held high. May your word go forth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 4 introduces us to uh, a new setting, a new scene, the first real scene change in the book of Genesis. Um, We are now outside the garden. Following the first sin and the the pronouncement of the curse, Adam and Eve are are sent away. And uh, and here we see the the true beginning of of life in a fallen world. This passage plays out as as a conversation. If you um, wanted to to break it down, organize it, you see the the offering of Cain and Abel, and then after that, it's, it's punctuated by alternating speech, Cain and the Lord, Cain and the Lord. Um, but let's pick up first um, here in verses 1 to 5, uh, and we see that, that sin is deceitful. Sin is deceitful. As you look at the, the example of our oldest brother, we see sin is deceitful. There's a lot going on here. We're going to have to move fairly quickly, but um, just to set the stage for us, this first verse really stands out so clearly as it, as it opens the chapter. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore a son, Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This is a triumphal moment. This is, this is huge for Eve. Um, if you've been with us through the, the book of Genesis, and we, we spent uh, like three weeks over Christmas just drilling down on chapter 3, verse 15. That's a, a crucial moment in, in God's revelation. Um, God is laying out the, the curse of sin, and, and in that, he makes this glorious promise, the first promise of the gospel, of a, a rescuer who would come, that there would be 
a son, a male child born of a woman who would, who would defeat the serpent, who would undo the damage uh, of sin, who would rescue humanity out from under this, this curse. We saw last week, chapter 3, verse 20, that Adam names his wife Eve because she's the mother of all living. He names her life because she's going to, to give birth to, to children, and one of them will be this, this son, this rescuer is going to come through Eve, right? It's a statement of hope. Adam's pointing back to that promise, and so you can imagine here now as Eve bears a child, she's pregnant, uh, they didn't do an ultrasound, they didn't have a gender reveal party before the baby was born, um, they found out on the day, the good old-fashioned way, it's a son. A woman has born a son. The, what could she think? This is, this is it, this is him, she has to be thinking that. Here it is. It's not as clear in our English, but it is in the Hebrew. The word Cain is a, a form of the word. It's not the exact same word, but it's a variation of the word gotten. Same root. And so that sentence there that follows um, is, is, is Eve explaining why she has named him this. She named him Cain, saying, I have gotten a man in the help of the Lord. This is Eve somewhat tragically misrepresenting, misinterpreting God's promise. As we are so often prone to do and have to guard against, um, she took God's promise and understood it very narrowly and specifically to her, more so than it was intended to be. Poor Eve is convinced Cain's the rescuer. This is the one. He's come. And again, it's not hard to understand why she would think that, but but imagine for Cain, like this sets him up for pressure. Every time he hears his name, he hears, good morning, chosen one. <laughs> time for lunch. The one that, that has been gotten by the Lord. Serpent crusher, do you want to go out for ice cream? Look at the start of verse 2. The start of verse 2 is very different. The phrase and again, is, is just anticlimactic right off the bat. Carrying on from that, secondary to that, Abel. He's just second. He's just the next one. And how is he defined? Is it, is it Adam knew his wife again? Adam bore another child? No, he's Cain's brother. Like this is worst case scenario for a younger brother, right? Oh, aren't you, aren't you Cain's brother? Abel's name doesn't come with an explanation like Cain's does. She names him Cain because she's gotten a man and she just names him Abel. Maybe it's better it doesn't have an explanation. Uh, again, um, the English gives us little. Um, the Hebrew behind it, um, actually, um, most of you would immediately recognize the meaning of Abel's name. Um, and you would recognize it because last year we preached through the book of Ecclesiastes. Anyone want to guess at the, the Hebrew um, pronunciation of Abel's name? It's close. Anybody? It's the word Havel. It's vanity. <laughs> that's his name. That word through Ecclesiastes that's used to speak of that which, which is like a mist that comes and goes. There's, there's nothing to it. It's a vapor. That's his name. 
I've gotten a son with the help of the Lord, and then again I had another child, vanity. You think they had some struggles as brothers? You think there's some some tension building there? Um, I don't know if you've been a bookstore lately, but um, last time I was, I was surrounded um, by the face of uh, of Prince Harry. Um, His book, Spare, right? Built off this idea that the the king's job is to have an, an heir and a spare, and he's just the spare. It's kind of hard to feel bad for the guy that grew up in Windsor Palace, but we'll leave that alone. Um, but that's Abel, right? There's Cain, and then there's Havel. Now we're told that Abel was a, a keeper of the sheep. Cain, in the footsteps of his father, works the ground. He's a farmer. And in the course of time, both Cain and Abel uh, bring an offering to the Lord. Now, I've got to pause here and, uh, and address something I said last week. Um, last week, talking about the Lord um, killing the animal to clothe Adam and Eve. Remember that? They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. They tried to hide their own shame, and they failed. And the Lord came, and he killed an animal and clothed them with its skin. Um, and we looked at Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And, and that's all on point. Stand by that. Um, but I, I will say I got a little bit too eager, and, and I pointed forward to this passage um, saying Cain should have known that he, he should have offered a sacrifice of, of blood, not vegetation. And uh, just to be blunt, I was wrong. <laughs> Go figure, that happens. Um, so that's why you need to have your Bible open. Um, and, uh, and I welcome, if you're seeing something, you're like, uh, John, you missed that. Um, I, I, should not be a big deal, right? Like, I feel like there's this sense of like, oh, I have to address the pastor. I have to, you know, write a letter. Just, hey, John, <laughs> I think you missed that. Um, that's a great conversation I'm happy to have. And uh, maybe I can say, uh, no, actually, I'll, let me show you what I was thinking. Or maybe I got to say, oh, yeah, you're right. I didn't think of that. Um, so that's what happened here. I, a little eager, was looking forward. Uh, I made an assumption, and I was wrong. Um, that's the beauty of expository preaching, by the way. Um, I get to preach things that I don't know. Uh, because I get to open God's word and learn and then bring that. Um, I get to study and understand new things and grow in my understanding of Scripture. Taking a closer look at this passage, just to show you why I now think that was wrong, um, the word isn't sacrifice. They didn't bring a sacrifice, they brought an offering. And, and those two are different. Um, the same word there, um, used for offering, uh, is used in Leviticus to speak of the grain offering and the first fruits of the field. So a, an offering of vegetation actually is not surprising at all. Um, this wasn't meant to be uh, a covering for sin that would require blood. This was just a, an offering of worship. Um, now, I always would have said the root of the issue is the heart, right? It's faith. That's at the, that's at the bottom of this. Um, that, I think, actually becomes even more clear um, because as you're looking at the text, it doesn't see a problem. It's not pitting animal sacrifice versus vegetable sacrifice. There's nothing wrong with either of those. Um, And that's kind of where the deceitfulness of sin comes in. Outwardly, they both did something that was right and good. They were both doing, doing a good thing. If you look closely, there is a distinction there. There is a bit of a difference um, Cain says he, he offered the first fruits of the ground. He brought some crop. Comes to Abel's sacrifice. It says Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. There's a little more description there. 
That's the difference. Firstborn is the most precious. The, the fat portions, those are the best choicest pieces. I don't know about you, but I, I want me a fatty steak. I want a ribeye. And the best part is I married a good helper fit for me who likes to cut the fat off of hers and slide that onto my plate. Um, that's the good stuff. That's what, that's what Abel brought, the fat portions. But even here, the, again, the difference isn't entirely just the offering. That's not what truly matters. It's the heart behind it. It's the heart that, that made the difference. Significant, the end of verse 4 says, The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, the Lord had no regard. God isn't just looking at the offering. He's looking at the offerer. He's looking at the attitude, the heart behind what is offered. Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith, makes this clear. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. It was, it was faith that made the difference. It was faith that produced the difference in that offering. It was faith that mattered. A little bit of speculation here, but it's not hard to fill in the gaps. Be easy to see Cain coming in as proud. He grew up believing he's the one, he's, he's the guy. And so he comes arrogantly, he comes casually, he comes carelessly, bringing God just what was expected, going through the motions, checking off the boxes. He was doing the thing, but there's no heart. There's no joy in it. There's no, there's no true worship in it. It's, it wasn't an act of faith. It was an act of pride. Abel, however, in some ways, against all odds, came with an offering that is generous, that is, that is costly. It's first firstborn from the flock. And it was made in faith. He comes trusting the Lord. He comes worshiping the Lord from the, from the heart. Well, this speaks a lot to our offering. Do we come um, with the, the firstborn and the fat portions as, a, as an offering of faith to the Lord, or, or do we just give 10% because that's what we're supposed to do, and that's right, and that's good? That deceitfulness of sin, it, it, it bleeds in so many ways. I tell you what, I, I watched my brother fall into every pitfall and I carefully avoided them and lived a life that on the outside, um, to those looking in, looked pretty squeaky clean. Um, I'm pretty sure my parents thought of me as the easy child. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure the people at church saw me as the good kid and, uh, and so did I. My role as the younger brother, I became like the older brother from the prodigal son. Proud. Proud of my exterior. I went to church. I attended youth group. I had the right friends. I did the good things. I didn't do the bad things. It wasn't an act of loving worship and service to the Lord. It was all about me. It was all about me. Not so that, so that God would be honored, but so that people would look at me and be impressed, so that God would look at me and be impressed. If that's not the height of foolishness, I don't know what is. Look at me, God. Look at all the amazing things I did. Everlasting God, creator of the heavens and the earth. 
It's all the right things. There's no heart in it. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We get so deceived in our sin that we think we can impress God. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. In, in pride, um, we, we seek all kinds of things from God. We try to earn stuff from God. We try to impress God. So easy to believe we're on the right track. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm getting there. In faith, we seek God. The Lord rewards those who by faith seek after Him. Don't be deceived. You bring your offering to the Lord when you come to church and sing in worship, when you, you put your offering in the basket as it goes by, when you at home stop and, and spend time reading the word and time in prayer. Um, none of those actions are sufficient in themselves. None of those things impress God. None of those things even please God unless they're the, the fruit born out of faith, out of trusting him. You might be the biggest financial donor in this church, and by the way, I would have no idea. I don't see any of that, and I don't want to, um, but it means nothing. If it's not an offering made from faith, if it's not coming to the Lord out of humility and trusting the Lord and, and seeking Him, then it doesn't please Him. Cain was so deceived in his sin. He came with his offering. Everything looked good from the outside. Seems that Cain even believed that he was doing what was right. He was doing everything right. But he lacked faith. He lacked a, a humility before the Lord. Sin is so deceptive. So deceptive that even when the Lord corrects him, what does he do? He fights back. How dare you question my offering, God? We need to watch our hearts. We are so easily self-deceived. We'll pick up on that theme uh, again in a minute. So first we see that sin is deceptive. Secondly, we see that sin is deadly. Sin is deadly. And Cain had insulted God. He showed up as, as a sinner before the Lord, uh, a descendant of Adam deserving of death, and instead of coming in humble gratitude, he came in pride. The Lord would have been holy and just and right to just crush him on the spot. But the Lord's patient with him. Such a beautiful yet heartbreaking passage of Scripture. The Lord gently but passionately uh, pleads with Cain. Look at verses 6 and 7. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why are you angry and... Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? There's option A. Do the right. Do it right. Do well, you'll be accepted. I'm not, I'm not holding you out. I'm not excluding you. There shouldn't be any surprise here. Do what is right and you'll be accepted. Option B, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. 
And Cain is angry that his offering is not accepted. The Lord's response is simple. Don't, don't get angry. Why would you be angry? That doesn't make any sense. Just do what's right. Just come to me in, in faith. Cain's anger does nothing to make him right. He's, he's not going to win this argument with God. In fact, it actually just shows how truly wrong he is. I mean, just put yourself in this position, and, and, and I hope your, your heart would illuminate this as you think about it. Imagine that you'd come with your offering before the Lord, and the Lord himself says, that's nice, but, but it's not acceptable because your heart isn't right. Let that sink in. What do you feel? What do you think? Would you not be crushed? Would you not drop to your knees in, in regret and, and repentance? Would you not plead with the Lord to be merciful? To give you the, the humility and faith that you lacked? Wouldn't you want to agree with the Lord? I, I, or even if you did, Lord, I don't see it, but help me. That would be a beautiful thing. That would have been a glorious turn in this story for Cain to drop to his knees and say, Lord, I come to you in repentance. I have nothing but sin. Give me the faith to believe. But no, Cain responds to the Lord in anger as if it's the Lord's fault. You did this. Your standards are too high. This is unrealistic. You don't see how good my offering really is, God. And he gets angry at Abel. Because his heart isn't right. As Charles Spurgeon used to say, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. God comes with his warning. Some are softened. Some come broken before him. Others are hardened all the more. How dare you? It's in these corrective moments that the, the true believer and the, and the false convert are separated being warned by the Lord, having this precious opportunity to, to correct course, Cain just digs all the deeper into his sin. The Lord paints this terrifying picture then. Cain, sin is crouching at your door. He uses the, the language of a, of a wild animal, a prowling animal. It's crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. It wants to have you to undo you, and you got to rule over it. Be careful, Cain. You, you think you're safe here. You think you can toy with this sin. You think you're in control here. You think you can entertain these thoughts that you can maybe walk a mile down this road and just come on back whenever you want. It's not how this is going to work, Cain. Sin is like a ferocious lion that is set on your destruction, and it's, it's waiting at the door. You give it opportunity. You, you let that door crack open carelessly, and it will pounce in. It will devour you. You've got to rule over it. We realize the danger of sin. Maybe it's the sin of pride. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's bitterness or unforgiveness. Maybe it's fear or anxiety. Those are those are favorite pet sins because that one we can paint as weakness. I'm just anxious all the time. There's a sinful root to that of, of unbelief. And we like to treat our sin like a, like a soft little kitten. 
thinking I can stroke it and coddle it. This is my, this is my sin. Do you want to see it? Or maybe we hide it away in the, in the cloak. This is, just, this is just my sin. Nobody else needs to know. And, you know, it, it bites or scratches every now and then, but it's my, it's my sin. It's my pet. And, and, and I, I'll, I'll get rid of it eventually. If it grows too big, I'll have it put down. I'm in control here. I could kill it, but I just want to keep it a little bit longer. I just want to enjoy it a little bit. It's like Bilbo or Gollum with the ring, my precious. Right? What if could I I just like to hold that one last time? I just want to stroke it a little bit longer. Church, we can't treat sin this way. Sin, your sin, my sin, it's it's deadly. It's deadly. Do we believe that? It's like a roaring lion, a vicious animal that is set on your destruction. 1 Peter 5.8, Peter says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Do we treat sin that way? We need to be vigilant and on guard. We should be terrified of sin in one sense. We see it. I just got to go. I can't have any more of that. I bought a truck this, uh, I guess, a couple years ago now. And, and when I bought it, it was beautiful. It was all kind of intact and in shape. And if you look at it now, the, the fenders are just kind of evaporated. It was all painted over nicely, but behind there was rust just eating it out. We can get away pretty well with our lives looking okay on the outside as that rust just devours from the inside, and it's everywhere. It's a cancer. We have to take it seriously. We need to go after it. Are we willing, the moment you see sin, to, to do everything you can to kill it? Not just wound it, not, certainly not play with it, kill it. Bring it into the light. We, we kill sin through repentance and confession. Right? Bring it into the light. Sin grows well in the darkness. We confess it not only to God, we, we confess to one another. Pray for one another. Brothers and sisters who would encourage you and, and pray with you and pray for you, who would, who would follow up with you, hold you accountable on that. That, that we wouldn't fall prey to the sin. That's hard when you see sin as your pet. That feels like I need to betray myself. Why would I do that? And that's exactly what you need to do. I need to turn myself in. You'd only betray yourself if you believed that that sin was more than you could handle, that it was out of your control, because it is. Hear this warning from God. Sin is deceitful and sin is deadly. It's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I want to just challenge you. If you're sitting here going, yeah, I know this sin. The Holy Spirit is poking there. Um, Today's the day. Don't wait. Talk with somebody before you leave here. Find somebody in your small group. Hey, here's what I'm dealing with. Here's what I'm seeing. Help me. Take it to the Lord. Sin is deceitful, sin is deadly, and then sin is destructive. It's destructive. Verses 8 and 9. 
Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. It seems by the context, what he's saying is he's luring him out. This is premeditated. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Just pause there. This is the the tragic insanity of sin and the sinful heart. Warned twice by the Lord. Not who gets that opportunity. Warned twice by the Lord. Cain doesn't want to master his sin. He doesn't want to kill it. He embraces it. He indulges in it all the more. And unable to lash out at God um, like an angry child caught in discipline, he lashes out at his brother. 1 John 3, 11, 12 kind of illuminates this for us. For this is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain. There's that example of the older brother. Do not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and who murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. He saw that Cain was righteous, that Cain had faith, that Cain did have the regard of the Lord, and he hated him for it. Sin is so destructive. Ray Ortland said this, what happened back in Genesis 4 was the beginning of every church split, every act of persecution, every word of gossip, every tactic for undermining a devoted Christian. Trapped in our sin, we lash out at somebody else. We gossip, we slander. Some of you waited a long time for this answer. This this, uh, is a bit of an open question from back in in Genesis 3.15. The Lord said to the serpent, um, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And uh, as we went through that, I didn't really have time to, to dive into that, and, and it's not a solidly answered question in my mind. Um, but the question is, offspring of the serpent? What's that? Where does that come from? Does Satan have children? Um, now, some people would say, well, you know, kind of metaphorically, speaking of Satan and the demons, I, I think that's a fairly valid answer. They're not his children, but they're part of that family, if you will. Um, another answer would just be it's kind of just metaphorical language of the battle between sin and humanity. Um, again, possibly. A third option that presents itself here, I'm, I'm more convinced of, I lean this way more as I study my way through. I hope when I get to the end of the book of Genesis, we could start over, and, and then I'll know enough to, to go a little further with it. Um, this third option, um, Genesis does clearly lay out a righteous line from Eve, the descendants of her who follow the Lord. Some would, um, that, that line then includes Abel, who dies and picks up with Seth and, and leads into the patriarchs, the fathers. Um, and then there's an unrighteous line that begins with Cain. The unrighteous line is in constant conflict. There's enmity, there's the battle between what, in the New Testament, we see often described as the world, in enmity with the children of God in enmity with those who would follow the Lord. And so this this unrighteous line and this righteous line in constant conflict, 
And uh, that might be what the Lord is talking about, is the offspring of the serpent. It is humans who live in that rebellion. First uh, John 3, 12, um, again, as we just read, don't be like Cain, he was of the evil one. That, that sounds like a child of the devil. John 8, 44, um, the Pharisees claim to be children of Abraham, and Jesus, he does this a few times, he says, you are of your father, the devil. The Pharisees, they, they were descendants of Satan. Jesus uses that language. So um, this division, this, this violence against um, the, 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 the seed of the woman, um, this enmity exists. And it's destructive. This destructiveness of sin on display, this is the, the fruit of a heart that is deceived by sin and is hardened in sin. Verse 9, the Lord comes to Cain much the same way he came to his father, Adam, in the garden, asking the question, hey, where's your brother Abel? He's giving him opportunity for confession, opportunity for repentance. But Cain fires back. Very telling words. I don't know. Lie. Am I my brother's keeper? He's scoffing. The rhetorical answer that Cain is looking for is no. I am not my brother's keeper. He's a, he's a grown man. His decisions are his own. I'm not accountable for him. I'm not my brother's keeper. This is the root of that sin. Before Cain's sin ended Abel's life, it ended their relationship. This shows his just complete lack of brotherly love to a shocking extent. Even to this day, people will use this phrase. Am I my brother's keeper? And the, again, the rhetorical answer is no. No, we are individuals, right? I'm accountable for me and he's accountable for him. This lets me off the hook. I'm not responsible for other people's problems. Look where that took Cain. If we truly understood the deceitfulness of sin, the danger of sin, that the root of that sin is in you and in me, this kind of independent thinking would, would just be terrifying. Sin tries to destroy our relationships, our, our community, because that's exactly what we desperately need to fight against our sin. The biblical answer is yes. Am I my brother's keeper? Bingo. Yes, you are. And your brother, um, you'll need him to keep you as well. The New Testament has at least 54 one another commandments. Love one another. Bear one another's burdens. Instruct one another. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. Yeah, I'd say it looks like you're your brother's keeper. Take a look at this one, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Take care Brothers, lest there be in any of you, think of the language there. So all of you, each of you, take care, be on guard in case, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
That's where Cain is. He's, he's hardened. He's been deceived by his sin, and now he's hardened in it, and it is wreaking havoc in his life. He's angry at God. He's running down the road toward destruction. This is where we so quickly get. We have this solo Christian mentality. Hebrews says, hey, everybody here, you're your brother's keeper. Be careful that there's no one else here who's hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Look around, church. This is us. This is what we need. We need one another. That kind of destruction is what happens when church becomes something out there. When church becomes a place that I go to, a thing that I attend on Sunday, rather than something I'm intimately involved in, a part of a a community with intimacy. We need each other. It's interesting, there seems to be a lot of confusion these days about membership. We aren't a church that votes. We don't see that in Scripture. Um, We are led by our elders, and so I've been asked a few times over the last little while, well then what's the purpose of membership if I don't even get a vote? We like to think of membership in the church like membership in a country club, membership at Costco, right? What are the member benefits? Do I get, a, do I get an owner's stake and a kickback of the earnings every year? Do I get influence? How does this work? Membership in the church is much more about this right here. It's about committing yourself to the community. It's about opening yourself up to accountability, welcoming that. to to, to taking an identifiable group and committing to these people and saying, these are the people who I am going to try to journey through this life together. These are the people who I'm, I'm gonna say, I will be careful that there's none among this group who are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Otherwise, where does it, how far does that reach? This is the group we're, accountable to. This is the group that we're just linking arms with to intentionally say, yeah, we need each other. I'm willing to give myself to you, and I hope you'll give yourself to me. That's why membership at Redemption includes a commitment to small groups. That's a crucial part of how this happens. It's hard right now. As you're sitting in a sanctuary um, to know what's happening in the heart of the, of the man or woman on the other side of the sanctuary. I don't know. We'll have some fellowship time afterwards, but there's kids going everywhere, and, and that's beautiful, but it's just, it, it's necessary that we sit down together. That's what small groups is about, to sit eyeball to eyeball in a living room with a, a small enough group that we can have a conversation, talk about it. What's God doing? How do you see his word at work in your life? And then we break off men and women, even smaller. And we have opportunity to say to each other, hey, how's it going? How's your time in the Word? How's your patience been with kids this week? Encourage each other. Spur one another on. Have that community. I'm aware the different small groups are kind of at different places in the material we're going through right now. Um, Tripp talks about that, that intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, gospel-driven community. And I'm like, yes, more of that. That's what we need. I love that. That is, that is beautifully uncomfortable, right? Intentionally intrusive. I'm going to get right into it. We're going to be intrusive into each other's lives, but not with condemnation, not with shame, but with, with Christ-centered, gospel-driven community. 
Brother, I see this sin in your life. You might be trying to hide it, but it's showing up. I see it. There's grace for that. Let me grab your hand. Let's run toward the cross. Let's grow in Christ together. That's what it's about. That's why small groups are supported. That's why, that's why we have a prayer meeting once a month. Please come on Wednesday. I, we're going to be together on our knees in fellowship, looking at the glory of God together, bringing our concerns to him. Bring the kids if you have to. That's great. I drag mine along. They think it's boring, and I'm praying the Lord works in their hearts and that they grow seeing the people of God coming before the throne of God, and they count that as precious. We need it. We need one another. Either your sin will destroy your community or your community will destroy your sin by God's grace as his tool. So I would just encourage you, if you're not a part of a small group, why not? If you're not a member of the church, why not? I hope it's not that you think you're okay out there on your own. You're not. There's, there's lions out there. There's lions in here too. We're a lot better off together. We need it. And I know some people will say, well, I have, I have community. I'm just not officially a member, and I'm glad that you're leaning in. Um, but it's kind of like saying, I, I, have a, I have a family. I just don't have a formal marriage. Isn't, isn't marriage just a piece of paper? No. No, it's a commitment. Commitment matters. Don't just shack up with the church, right? Get in. Don't leave that to chance. Certainly don't, don't think you're better off on your own. We need each other. Sin is deceitful and it's dangerous and it's destructive. And the community, the body of Christ, is one of the primary tools uh, that the Lord uses to fight against that. Well, that's such an uplifting, cheery message. Let's go one more. Sin is deceiving and dangerous and destructive. And finally, it's damning. We hit rock bottom. It's just damning. Look at verses 10 to 16. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now... Cursed, you are cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall, not, it shall no longer yield, its, yield you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I'll be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest there be any who found him should attack him. And Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The Lord tells Cain, his brother's blood is crying out from the ground. The witness of Abel's wrongfully shed blood just screams out. Something the Lord can't overlook. Justice must be done. The Lord curses Cain. The ground will no longer produce its yield for you. And he makes him a fugitive, a wanderer. Once again, 
Cain shows the hardness of his heart. He pushes back against the Lord's punishment. Remember the thief on the cross? Luke 23. He's hanging on the cross beside Jesus and he comes under conviction of his sin. Talk about like deathbed conversion. This is electric chair conversion. He's hanging on the cross as a criminal and he calls out to the other criminals, do you not fear God? For we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. We deserve to be here. This man has done nothing wrong. Now Cain doesn't go there. Cain doesn't have conviction of sin. He doesn't, he doesn't receive his punishment and go, oh no, I'm a sinner, I need help. He says, God, how dare you? My punishment is, is more than I can bear. God, this isn't fair, this is too much. And, and he does include in there that he'll be away from the face of the Lord, but his primary fear is his own life. God, they'll kill me. Whoever finds me will kill me. Why? Well, because whoever finds him is going to be one of Abel's brothers. They're not very happy about this. The Lord is gracious. He puts some kind of mark on Cain um, that would protect him. There's tons of just speculation and nonsense about what the mark is. Um, helpful thing to keep in mind, the mark is a positive thing. It's a mark of protection on Cain from the Lord. Whatever it is, um, Though Cain deserves death, um, once we get to Genesis 9, the Lord is going to institute an, an official death penalty for murder. And, and yet, God is not okay with revenge killing. He, he's not okay with vigilante justice. And so the Lord protects Cain that no one would kill him. And yet the Lord's judgment still stands. Cain is sent out from the presence of the Lord. That's huge. He's sent out from the presence of the Lord. And he said to settle in the land of Nod. And uh, that, again, is a bit strange. The word Nod means to be aimless or restless. Probably speaks of this new tension that exists for Cain. Uh, His new home is not a home. He's been sent away. Um, Also significant, a little tidbit as you're reading through Scripture, you'll see it time uh, here and there, um, east of Eden. Remember Adam and Eve were, were run out of the garden Uh, And they came out to the east, and the gate was on the east, and the Lord closed it. Now, as he sent away further to the east, he sent away further from the presence of the Lord. The Lord is building a principle here. Sin separates from God. Sin cannot be in the presence of the holy, righteous God. God is infinitely committed infinitely, passionately committed to everything that is good and right and true and just. And that means he must be equally against and opposed to all that is wicked and false and wrong. That's terrifying. No unclean, impure thing can dwell in his presence. I want to be careful there. We speak of that. Hell is being away from the presence of the Lord. That's true in one sense. That's being away from the the presence of his kindness It's not having his face turned towards you. Those in hell would wish that they were away from the full presence of the Lord because it is the presence of God's justice and his wrath. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And the Lord is wrathful against sin. He has to be. 
This is foreshadowing of the eternal separation from God in eternity in hell. Sin is damning. And this is where the story of Cain ends. That's it. Start out with such hope and, and promise. Behold, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. The, the rescuer is here, and, and it ends in absolute devastation. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Even after the Lord's warning, even after the Lord's patience with him and kindness toward him, Cain continues on in his pride, consumed by his sin. That's the end of Cain's story. It's not the end of God's story. And it doesn't have to be the end of your story. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, where we started. Now these things happen to them as an example They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Cain continued in his sin, but the Lord continued holding out that warning, putting Cain up as an an example, as a signpost, dead end, cliff to head, don't go this way. Holding out his grace. Cain was not the hoped for promised rescuer, but that promised rescuer would still come. As we look ahead, there's an amazing statement made uh, in the book of Hebrews. It just takes this story of Cain and Abel and and breaks it wide open. Just a a little comment that, that just causes all of the rich meaning of Cain and Abel to spill out. Sin is deceitful. Sin is deadly. Sin is destructive. Sin is damning. And Christ is the deliverer. Look at this, Hebrews 12, 24 says that now we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How beautifully understated. You see how the writer of Hebrews reads Scripture? We need to, we need to learn to read the Old Testament this way. It's not just stories. It's not just morals. It's Christ in every page. And he sees this lesson by contrast, by comparison, the the blood of Abel crying out for condemnation, for justice to be done. The wicked Cain spilled his brother's blood, took his life trying to, to cover his own sin. He was overcome by the power of sin responded scoffingly to God, am I my brother's keeper? And and for that he bore an unbearable punishment, cast away from the presence of the Lord. That's what the blood of Abel cries out from the ground, condemnation. But we, now at the end of the age, as Paul says, in these last days, the age of the Messiah, we come to Jesus. We know the rest of the story. It's been painted out clear. In every way that Cain failed, Christ succeeded. The list could probably go on bigger, but Christ's sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel spilled. Christ, the true shepherd, who though he was holy and without sin, allowed his life to be taken 
gave his life freely to cover our sin. Rather than being overcome by the power of sin, he overcame the power of sin. And he became the ultimate keeper of his brother as he bore our unbearable punishment on the cross. He was cast out of the presence of the Lord, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we who deserve to be forsaken could be brought into the presence of the Lord. He who deserved heaven received hell so that we who deserved hell could receive heaven. You see how the author of Hebrews is reading this. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It all points to Christ. The blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood spilled, again, screaming out for justice, for God's wrath, and that cry will not be ignored. Sin is damning. God will punish it. Don't be deceived. I'm so much better than Cain, though. I'm no murderer. Jesus strips that away. Matthew 5, 21. You've heard it said, those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And we're like, yes, murder's bad. Murder will be judged. Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoa, easy now. Jesus is saying the sin of anger and the sin of hatred are the same root as the sin of murder. And God will judge it the same. And the same is true of adultery and lust, of theft and coveting, of idolatry and greed. We stand before the Lord condemned. Sin is damning. The spilled blood of Abel cries out against us. And there is but one hope, the sprinkled blood of Christ. Sprinkled is a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system. The blood of the lamb and the bull would be, would be sprinkled on the altar, sometimes sprinkled on the people. And the sprinkled blood of Christ speaks. It cries out with a better word than the spilled blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries out for justice, for our damnation, and Christ's blood cries out for our deliverance. Cries out to God with a voice that absolutely drowns out the blood of Abel. It cries out that God's justice has been satisfied. For all those who are sprinkled in his blood, there is therefore now no condemnation. The price has been paid. They will not be cast out of the presence of the Lord. Because of his blood, they will be forgiven, they will be washed, they will be adopted, they will be brought near. Church, sin is deceitful, it is deadly, it is destructive, it is ultimately damning. And Christ is the deliverer. Do you know him this morning? I mean, this is number one. Are you sprinkled in that blood? Are you trusting in him? Where is your heart this morning? Even by, for those who've been trusting in him, we can be deceived by sin. Have you come with an offering to the Lord, but there's pride in your heart? You're trying to do the right things, not seeking him, not trusting him. 
Do you see the deadliness of sin? Are you vigilantly fighting against it? Are you you trying to keep it as a pet? Are you trying to control it? Are you living in the destruction of sin? Are there relationships in your life that, that need to be restored? Repentance that needs to be sought after? Are you engaging in community and in the, in the church? And again, most importantly, are you living under the damnation of sin? Or do you know the deliverance that is in Christ? Why don't you just give us a couple of minutes before we close. Josh, you can come and uh, prepare to lead us. Um, but I want us to just take some time before the Lord. Just search your heart. What is the Holy Spirit working in you today? How do you need to respond to the Lord? Examine your heart, confess your sin, and come in repentance. So we're going to close in song together in a few minutes, but first, just yeah, a few minutes just between you and the Lord, um, examining your heart. Where, where do you need to respond to him today?